0: This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Acme. Hello, everyone. My name's Kate Fouquet, I'm the interim studio manager at AcmeX. I'd like to welcome you and I would like to acknowledge our major sponsors, University of Melbourne and RMIT University. Without any further ado, I'd like to introduce you to our speaker tonight, Peter Tullen, who's the founder of Culture Label and has had a major part in um, the beginnings of AcmeX. So thanks for coming, Peter. Thanks for coming, everybody. Hello. Everyone here okay? I'm not really sure I need a microphone, but anyway, give it a go. Uh, so I'm glad some of you at least have resisted the sunshine and have been tempted by beers indoors rather than outside. Uh, it's not obviously the, the largest audience, uh, but I think obviously you'll make up for it no doubt with enthusiasm as we go along and interaction and I guess in the spirit of that, as it's you know feels like a pretty intimate kind of show here. Um, it would be kind of handy for me because I've been told today talk about the story of an entrepreneur and some stuff in that space that I think is kind of interesting and I've been told you like really kind of practical stuff in terms of what kind of insights you might get from sort of running a startup business so we've got like a real kind of mix in here which is fab and I think um, what's interesting is probably what's in the room reflects the topic of this where we're talking about creative entrepreneurship and there's obviously a lot of, you know similar things within the kind of tech world, but then there are specific things within the kind of creative industries that might be interesting as well to kind of pull out. Uh, so, so it's lovely to be back here at AcmeX, and as mentioned, I've worked with sort of Helen over a period of time to um, develop this space, and it kind of reflects, I guess, what I'm passionate about, which is, is creative entrepreneurship. And I thought I'd start by just giving you a little bit of kind of introduction to myself and some of the stuff that I'm up to but then zeroing in on culturelabel.com, which is something uh, that I worked on for about six years from inception to sort of exiting the business when we sold it a couple of years ago, and to give you that sort of warts and all journey as an entrepreneur and and hopefully sort of pull out some of those lessons that that we learned. And our particular ideas I'll talk about is in the e-commerce space, but hopefully some of those lessons are transferable, whatever type of business idea you're developing. So... I'll just start by just giving a bit of an introduction to what Culture Label was, and then as we're in a film-based uh, institution, I've got a little film which feels appropriate. So um, so Culture Label is one of those incredibly simple ideas, perhaps so simple that we thought somebody would already have thought of this. Um, and it really sort of was in that space of um, wanting to sell art and design products online At a time when actually, it seems fairly obvious now, but a lot of people questioned whether that would be even possible sort of back in 2008, 2009 when we were coming up with this idea. Um, And we had a really simple idea, myself and Simon Cronshaw, who was the other co-founder, where we were working within arts and culture at that point um, for a a national arts agency within the UK. Um, We could see the huge kind of growth of cultural brands and audiences for cultural institutions and we were just in the uh, the ICA, which, if you know it, is a kind of contemporary art gallery in, in London, um, just off the Mall by Buckingham Palace, and we were sat in uh, their cafe, uh, and on the wall next to us, there were two really amazing uh, prints, uh, and those prints were by an artist called Mark Leckie. And Earlier that week, he'd just won the Turner Prize, which is probably the most significant uh, contemporary art prize uh, in the UK, if not one of the sort of major arts prizes in in the world. So he was covered in absolutely everything, including, um, you know, everything from, you know, publications like the Daily Mail saying Turner Prize winner, what a load of rubbish again, to all of the press that actually give it a sort of sensible kind of arts review. And we were just thinking, this is kind of really interesting, this artist has had so much publicity, kind of publicity you can't buy, yet there were, of this edition, there was an edition of 100, there probably would have been about 90 still available. And we were sort of thinking, well, you know, it was about £150, so depending on whatever the Brexit exchange rate is at the moment, would be about, you know, $250, something like that. And we thought... You know, versus going to somewhere like Ikea where you could buy a really sort of standard print for a not dissimilar price, you've got a Turner Prize winner, you've got something which is a limited edition so probably has a value as well as a story and authenticity at a similar price point to Ikea, yet there are 90 of 100 editions still available and it just really felt like there was a kind of disconnect between um, a market and that artist where the internet could possibly provide a conduit to reach a much wider audience. So the idea sort of came out of that initial kind of insight or that light bulb moment um, and really sort of snowballed from there. So I'll stop there and I'll tell you a bit more about Culture Label in a moment and what that involved. But effectively, the basic idea was to take some of the world's leading culture brands and what you would find within their stores, and also some of the artists and the designers that provided products for those stores, and to put them onto a single curated website. There's something else that I do at the moment, which I'm just going to give you a bit more of a context in terms of an introduction. Um, So having got very passionate about culturelabel.com, the other thing um, that we always had as a bit of a sideline is something called uh, Remix. Um, And Remix is a a series of uh, creativity and innovation conferences that take place in five cities around the world, so London, New York, Sydney, uh, Los Angeles, and Dubai. And it's an attempt to basically bring together innovators and creatives from lots of different worlds into the same room, um, from people within arts and culture to the technology industries, um, to have new types of conversations and think about the world in new ways. And hopefully by that sort of joining of the dots and those creative collisions that leads to new types of innovation. Um, And we've been doing it now for about four years. Um, uh, One of our most recent events was in, in Sydney in Australia. Uh, and it's reached to stage now where we're getting about 2,000 people coming to that event alone. So it's really kind of grown um, quite dramatically. And I guess some of the thinking that went into AcmeX um, came out of an experience that we had when we opened up one of the first co-working spaces for uh, creative industries anywhere in the world in the UK uh, just over three years ago. And we have a kind of hub space at, at Remix in Shoreditch in East London. So if you know that part of the world, it's very much a, a sort of center for the, the creative industries. Um, and this is our space where we have about uh, 50 or so um, individuals that work in various different types of, of creative businesses. And again, it's that cluster effect that obviously you get in a space like Acme X. And I'll talk through one of the two of the people that are in that space in terms of their stories and perhaps some of their insights as well. Um, and if you're interested, uh, we've, we've written uh, a kind of manifesto, which is almost a handbook for the would-be uh, creative entrepreneur, which is intelligent naivety. Um, and then remix is really looking at this new type of economy which is coming from all of these different collisions. So you can just download those. So that's kind of a little bit of a kind of introduction, I guess, in terms of my lens on the world and where I'm coming from with this talk. And I thought what would be happy to what would be interesting today would be to sort of talk through the genesis of culture label in a bit more detail. And then some of the lessons that came out of that particular journey. So as I mentioned, the first thing, I guess, in terms of developing an idea is is trying to kind of get ahead of the the curve and surfing trends. And and depending on where you're particularly sort of located in the world or your particular experience, it's getting that sort of light bulb moment or that inspiration. And I think, as I mentioned, for us, it was based in that deep-rooted Uh, Element of kind of working in arts and culture and from the inside just seeing the continual growth of of the cultural brand. And particularly in the UK, it benefit from huge amounts of lottery funding into new venues and audiences that had followed. Um, You could just see this kind of growth and that we were in a very exciting industry. So for us, partly kind of culture label came from um, sort of looking at the trends that were happening within the cultural sector and I guess having some inside track on that because we were working in that space at that particular time the second thing i guess was you know living and working in a city like london because this idea for us obviously started from uh, the uk and for london where we from london where we were based at that time um, and i think this trend's kind of ur- urbanomics so sums up the success of a number of the kind of creative entrepreneurs within london because you had that density or that critical mass of Urban professionals that were ready to consume these types of experiences, whether that was from a, a more commercial side of things and something like Hendrix and the way they traded on trends like Heritage and the creation of that particular brand. Or, you know, something like Secret Cinema, which you can see on the right there, which has been a, a runaway success that I'll sort of talk about a bit later as well. Or something like uh, Bold Tendencies and Frank's Campari Bar, which started as a very small thing out of a multi-storey car park in Peckham and, again, is cited as one of those sort of global examples of innovation and, on- and cultural entrepreneurship now. So the audience were there. Um, and obviously it's one thing having a potential audience, but you've got to connect that um, that sort of consumer demand with the product. And I think that's where we really had that, that main sort of genesis of the idea. And this is the, um, the famous limited edition that we saw in, in the ICA in the middle there. Uh, and obviously that insight around Mark Leckie and that very particular sort of moment, that was the sort of jumping off point for the idea. And then I guess, you know, going back to sort of 2008, 2009, um, it became obvious at that world, at that time, that world was still quite analog. A lot of those major museums didn't even have things like online shops. So, not only were we um, providing a kind of an e-commerce platform that you could sell those products, we were actually providing a real service for a lot of those museums that weren't trading online at that particular point. And again, a lot of these things sound very obvious now, but would have been less obvious in, in 2009. Um, and, And the really sort of simple bit, as I mentioned, was about aggregation, that these different types of brands, these different products were better together than everybody trying to sort of compete on their own. And then the final bit, I suppose, in terms of finding the gap is, you know, what was going to be that sort of killer product, and um, and for us it was selling art online. As I mentioned, a lot of people, particularly when we talk to investors, were very sceptical that people would ever buy art online. And like I say, it sounds, it sounds a crazy thing to say now, but people would talk about, well, the price points of many things online were much lower than art. Um, people needed to go into the gallery and to sort of, to see it in, in person, they needed the um, the insights of, of the curator, and we were coming in from a completely different perspective. That actually a lot of that sort of urban audience often were intimidated by the idea of going into galleries. And as long as you could provide um, the right information, and obviously you could could provide art at at the right price points, uh, that it would be perfectly possible to sell art online. And actually, if you weren't in London, you were elsewhere in the UK, elsewhere in the world, you might never step foot into those galleries. So there was a real opportunity to use the internet to take these things to audiences all around the world. Um, this was one of the, uh, the best-selling uh, pieces we ever sold on Culture Label. Um, uh, it was an, an artist called Pure Evil who was based actually just around the corner um, from our office. And this was a piece of street art which we could see out of our office window. And it was kind of became sort of the unofficial print of the London Olympics uh, called the Hackney Looting Logo, where you've got the hoodie stealing one of the Olympic rings. Um, And I think the sort of the the final bit, and and we had this sort of worldview, as I mentioned, was that we felt the arts world was kind of ripe for disruption. We felt that often people would sort of sit back, you know, within their walls, and we felt actually the walls were kind of coming down. Why shouldn't art and culture be disrupted like any other industry? You know, if you ask people in media or music, good or bad, things have changed quite dramatically. And we felt this was a little bit kind of late in coming in the art world. And actually, one of the things that we were really passionate about was connecting culture with new types of consumers. And we felt, obviously, again, that that approach of an entrepreneur or the internet was an interesting way of doing that. And I guess the final ingredient that went into Culture Label uh, in terms of, I guess, of our brand message and our particular take on the world was actually we didn't want to abandon those things that made culture great and interesting, and it was still about um, curation. In our case, it was still about the kind of quality, integrity, and context... So we weren't building a brand where you could find everything online in, in a way that something like Etsy exists, and Etsy is an incredibly successful um, site, but obviously they're a bit like an eBay in that sense, that you know anybody can list anything on a site like that. For us, it was all about this layer of curation, and particularly when you were talking about selling art and design products. But if you're going to do that, of course, you need to obviously tell a compelling story, and you need to make it very, very easy for people. So we did a lot of things to make, you know, looked at those kind of challenges, so for example the notion of um, having to spend a lot of money on art, and obviously we would have artworks on a site that could be to £3,000 and beyond. Um, so we teamed up with the, uh, the UK government, which ran a scheme through the Arts Council for offering interest-free loans for art, and we teamed up with them to take that whole process online. So again, we looked at ways that we could reduce the barriers to selling art online. So suddenly through Culture Label, you could borrow up to £2,000 and spread that out over 10 months in interest-free payments. So there were a lot of things that we were able to do through technology to make things very, very easy. And again, at this particular time, you've got to remember even large organizations, you know, some of the major national cultural institutions in the UK weren't even selling online. So the idea of offering things like interest-free loans online, these were significant step forwards in terms of really helping also those organizations to be able to sell to a much larger range of customers. Uh, and a really key part of what we were doing is, um, I guess Culture Label was one of those brands that who was kind of hard not to like because what we represented was all of those amazing organizations you know like the Tate or the V&A or the British Museum we were as good as our partners so we found that people instinctively as well as loving the products um, and now finding it hopefully very easy to find those products were keen also to support those organizations so the most important thing was that the products were good because nobody buys things online unless they like the products. And the great thing was they had fantastic products. They were just a little bit um, disconnected from an audience. Um, But there were also organizations that instinctively people would also like to support as well as buying an amazing artwork or something like that. So we found that it was really easy to generate media for culture label. We had literally thousands of pieces from any media organization you could imagine. And they pretty much all said lovely things about us, as did the customers that used the site. Um, And I think that goes back to the way that business is changing anyway, it's about passion branding, it's about authenticity. But ideally, in any business, hopefully, you create that emotional connection with the customer. And Culture label was definitely an easier business than most to do that because of the nature of what we were doing. But we also instituted things that made it a little bit easier to really feel like you were supporting those organisations or those individual artists as well. So for example, typically we took um, uh, only about 10% of the price from the major institutions. So as a customer you felt like most of what you were spending was going back to those organisations but I'll talk about margins and commercials later because they're obviously fairly key things in terms of a business model and and being an entrepreneur. So I'm just gonna kind of break down, I guess, now the the sort of the detail of of what happened, you know, through that sort of journey uh, with Culture Label and I guess our sort of key learning points, but also it's fair to say the different phases that we went through as a business from really sort of starting something up to uh, getting much bigger. So the first phase I would describe, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs start this way, It's the part-time business. So we'd had that big idea. We were very excited about it. We felt we'd kind of spotted a gap, um, both in terms of the, the brand, the delivery mechanism, and the consumer need. Um, but we were doing on a very kind of part-time basis. So we would go to work during the day. We would kind of cram the business development stuff and the business planning into kind of long nights and weekends, but we were still 9 to 5 with a day job, and as much as we thought we were kind of working around the clock and, you know, we probably um, felt like we were putting the hours in, in, in reality, I don't think we were fully focused when I sort of reflect on it. Um, about sort of you know sort of six months or so after we'd had the idea, we eventually did the kind of scary thing and we we quit our day jobs um, but we had that sort of interesting thing that happens where you kind of quit your job and you have a conversation with your boss and they say well." you know what? Don't quite quit yet. Why don't you kind of come back and you know, do a bit of consulting for us you know, a couple of days a week? And when you've got a mortgage, like I did, um, all of that sounded quite good. So we sort of quit our jobs, but we then sort of got reeled back in a little bit. So we had a period of time where we were doing kind of consulting work to kind of pay the bills. But I guess at least we were spending a bit more time um, you know, trying to kind of build the dream at that point. Um, the other thing I learned at this stage, and the really key bit about our journey at this stage, was obviously going and convincing people like the Tate and the British Museum to come on board with, um, you know, two individuals who, you know, they probably had never heard of and certainly weren't Amazon.com when we knocked on the door um, to kind of get on board with this idea and the project. Um, and I think, like, as anybody who's gone out and tried to um, it's, you know, sell a, a kind of an idea and that's what it is, it's about selling um, I think we found probably naivety enthusiasm, confidence um, gets you a long way um, and, I, and I think people probably like people warm to sort of other individuals so if you're able to go out and obviously persuade people that what you're going to do is not completely kind of far-fetched. That, that notion of, well, I shouldn't do something because I don't have the amazing CV or I'm not quite ready to do that because I've never done it before. Um, actually, we found that not to be a kind of barrier. And of course, there were all kinds of things that we were sort of building in behind the scenes to try and make sure the thing actually happened. But the important thing was actually to go out and have those conversations and talk to people. And before we knew it, you know, when we launched, we had about a hundred partners, which was, you know, amazing over a kind of really intensive three-month period of time where we sort of signed people up. Um, and it, you know, when we started, we were, you know, we weren't even sure whether we'd get one partner, let, al- let alone a hundred. So um, I think it's really important to kind of say that that unless you kind of try, then you never know what's going to happen. Um, and I think you know, part of that is obviously leveraging every asset you've got. That's about your networks, every conversation. Um, And we did a lot of kind of deal-making, so once it became obvious that there was an interest in the idea, and really that interest in an idea was a PowerPoint deck, so we had a series of slides about what this might look like, including what the site must look like, you know. Um, We'd put in sort of, um, you know, pictures like this to say, you know, this is what it's all going to look like, but it didn't exist. It was literally just an idea, we had no site, we had no technology. Um, So at the same time we were doing this, we were kind of doing deals in the background. And of course, I don't know how many of you have sort of done your own startup to the point where you set up a business and obviously you can give away equity in that business. So the way that we got our first site built was to go to a, um, a technology agency, a kind of web design agency, and we gave them a little bit of equity in order to build our first site because we had no money at that point. You know, We'd obviously had very, very little resources. We weren't paying ourselves a wage, so we certainly didn't have any money to build a website. Um, and for the kind of website that we needed, it was we knew it was going to be a reasonably expensive thing in order to realize, obviously, the ambitions that we'd um, we 'd given all of our various kind of partners around this site, so we did a bit of a deal and we and we got a website in return for giving some equity in, in the company um, but I think it 's fair to say all of this was just about getting the kind of show on the road and that getting that idea to the point of launch um, but we were never going to get anywhere kind of fast with this report, but it did get us to the point of launch and actually sort of starting something and happy to go into any of this in more detail if it 's kind of interesting for people uh, Yes and no. So um, it definitely wasn't the right way to build a scalable e-commerce company because we would have been better off kind of working out exactly what we needed at the start and sort of gunning for that solution. But things were happening quite fast. And in hindsight, by at least getting something out there, it gave us that critical mass around all of the media attention and everything else that definitely sort of pushed the business to the next level. But what we found is we were left with shareholders that further down the track, we didn't really need... And also, inevitably, the first website was not the website we needed. So, and, and to the point that it was dramatically not the website we needed. So we launched this whole business using like a portal model. So the idea was Culture Label would have a website with all of these different products and museums. And then you would click onto uh, a museum and it would go through to their shop if they had one. And you would buy the product on their site. And it all seemed like a really simple, easy idea in order to get the partners on board because we were like, look, you don't really need to do anything. We'll just click through to you, and we'll track who's going through. But that was the the naivety of not really knowing e-commerce at that point because we suddenly realized that, hang on, you're clicking from our lovely-looking site to kind of uh, a museum site, which often, with the best will in the world, there were pretty terrible e-commerce experiences. And in an Amazon world, obviously Amazon was... Um, the kind of key sort of um, e-commerce site that most of our customers were used to and you can buy things with one click on Amazon it's storing your card you would go onto a museum's website and it'd be about 20 clicks to buy something and it was a terrible e-commerce experience so of course people would go to our site and then the drop-off rate once they got past our site was extreme so all of these things you know you kind of don't learn I guess until you try Um, and I think Do do I regret it? Well, I guess there's just mistakes that you're going to make setting up any business. That was a particularly big one. But we felt by giving it away for equity, at least we hadn't paid, you know, 50 or 100,000 pounds to make that mistake. But obviously, we'd given away some equity, so there was less to give away to do other things or to bring in other types of investment. So it's a bit of both, probably. Um, But luckily enough, we were able to sort of... um, I guess sort of keep sort of um, growing the business. And because we had all of that kind of press coverage, it helped us land the the sort of the first, um, you know, round of investment. And there's something really amazing that they have in the U.S., which is now in Australia, which I'd encourage you to kind of check out. Or there's a variation of it in Australia called EIS, which stands for Enterprise Investment Scheme. And basically what that means is, in the middle of the kind of the GFC, when obviously the UK economy was really sort of struggling, um, the government decided technology was going to be the future, so they created really amazing tax incentives for... Um, rich individuals to invest in startups Um, and pretty similar tax incentives now exist in uh, Australia but to give you an idea of um, you know the the level of tax break so something like the the lowest tier of this scheme if I was to give um, $100,000 to you to support your startup business now if I'm throwing that kind of money around I'm probably a higher rate taxpayer so I'd get about 50% back immediately as a kind of tax rebate that year But if it all went terribly wrong and you weren't the next kind of Mark Zuckerberg or the next Amazon, the UK government gave a loss guarantee of about 30%. So really, you're only wasting or inv- putting at risk sort of 20% of your of your money. Um, so what quickly happened was, even if you know, companies are doing badly or the national economy is not doing so well, as we know from the GFC, the rich kind of just got richer. So there was always lots of money around. It was in the hands of these individuals. So the tax incentives basically meant that suddenly everybody had a technology portfolio alongside their other types of share portfolios. It's so like any investor will probably invest in a few different businesses some of them aren't going to work out but you might be the next uh, mark zuckerberg and they get a 20 times 30 times 100 times return on their investment the percentage that you give the investor can be can be any percentage that you agree with that investor so um, again depends on the amount of money they're going to give you and the valuation of the company so so typically you set a valuation for your company if it's a million dollars and you know, I'm, you know, you're getting a hundred thousand. Then you you would get ten percent of that company. But it's all based on the valuation. But if you then sell that company for a hundred million dollars, then obviously they're going to get ten percent of a hundred million dollars. So. So at this stage, we we raised about um, $400,000 from three investors through this particular scheme. And basically, what was fascinating in our case, and I guess this is maybe sometimes where's the difference between these creative business and and sort of a more generic business, is one of our investors really, really loved the arts. He ran a big insurance company in in London. He had more money than he knew what to, to do with in that sense. And he was a big philanthropist within the arts anyway. So he was giving money you know, out of the goodness of his heart, to various different types of arts organisations. And in reality, I think he looked at us and he said, actually, this is a different type of business. It's close to my passions from a business perspective, but also from a personal perspective. And actually, if I give money to this organisation or invest it, and it works, because a lot of that money is going to the arts anyway, it becomes like the gift that keeps on giving. Because every time they sell a, an artwork, if 90% is going to the Tate or the v then, you know, it's a really nice business model that appealed to his personal passions. And increasingly there are, I think, more and more of these types of people around because more and more of these creative businesses are proving to be scalable. So the good bit was we could also give him a return on his money in that Mark Zuckerberg-type way as well. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. So at this point, obviously, we had a bit of money in the bank. So um, we all went full-time. We dropped the kind of consulting gigs, and we hired our first three members of staff. Um, We did various sort of remedial works to the website, you know, in terms of getting it nearer kind of what we needed. Um, And we got at that stage a very, very cheap office. So we kind of felt like, you know, we were a kind of proper business. You know, we'd sort of um, got beyond that initial sort of startup phase. Um, and I think having a bit of cash in the bank, and, and I sort of preface this with the fact that I think entrepreneurs, one of the great skills is you can create something out of nothing or very little. It definitely gave us a bit more kind of permission to fail. Um, as our chairman at the time said, and um, his sort of business lesson was, you can fail and it's good to fail. And lots of people say this is associated with startups, but we just don't fail so much that we go out of business. Um, so I think it was sort of a, a spectrum of failure, really. Um, And I think sort of during this period, um, we sort of learned our craft, and a lot of people sort of talk about the 10,000-hour rule and putting the time in to really sort of understand something in in depth, Um, and I'm a kind of big believer in that, but I think certainly of our experience of culture label, and because a lot of it was about networks and building the partners, I think the sort of 10,000 contacts rule is probably equally um, relevant to us. And I think at this stage, you know, when you're employing people and it all gets a bit more serious, I think we certainly got a bit more sort of experienced and we learned to be a little bit kind of tougher, but hopefully sort of still nice because so much of of this stuff obviously depends on other people's goodwill towards you. Um, And in terms of the amount of investment, and and this is typically called a sort of friends and family round, um, you know, uh, it's kind of like a seed round basically. And I've mentioned if you're seeking less than $200,000 in the UK, you get all of these kind of tax breaks and there's, there's different tax breaks depending on the level. Okay, so at this point, we would basically kind of got the um, the business to, to break even, but it wasn't enough money to do all the things that we kind of really wanted, uh, and we were certainly kind of at risk um, uh, from competitors that were better funded starting to move into our space. So we're at a point now where there are other people starting to do kind of similar things to what we were doing, even if not exactly the same. So we kind of kept growing the business organically, using that little bit of money, um, you know, over the next sort of year or so, we got the business to kind of profit, uh, which is no mean feat in the startup world because they're mostly uh, those businesses that tend to not make a lot of money and lose a lot in, in the early days. Um, um, e-commerce businesses obviously tend to be a little bit, a little bit different, um, and we were up to about sort of two hundred and fifty thousand visits a month uh, on the site at this point, which in e-commerce terms is kind of reasonable um, at this stage of the journey, anyway. Um, so that actually gave us quite a bit of traction. So we were able to go to those bigger investors that I talked about, the venture capitalists, and say, Look, actually, we, we've, we've got a kind of profitable business now, but in order to really grow it, so to buy more marketing and power, which is going to get us more customers, to improve the site, to get a better conversion rate, and all the rest of it, um, we're going to need a lot more money. So, so we at that point raised uh, a round of about one and a half million dollars um, to basically grow the business more rapidly, particularly as obviously there were a lot of people sort of circling around our space. Um, and the, the venture capitalist that we worked with was was EC1, which is a kind of a London-based venture capital firm and they're what you'd call a kind of specialist technology venture capital firm so they're really after they're putting their money in because they're expecting you to be the next facebook or the next amazon they really are driving for a, a kind of big exit um, So at that point we had a bit more money in the bank so we moved to a, a, a much bigger office uh, which also gave us about half the office was empty so it gave us kind of room to expand and our team had grown to about 20 people uh, at this point so suddenly you've got a lot more kind of specialized resource so you've got people at a Leading on different product categories. You know some people working on product categories like art or fashion or whatever they might be. Um, you've got a bit of specialist resource around areas like digital marketing, um, for example. Um, so you're starting to basically be able to think about what are the different things that you need to grow within the business to kind of get to the next stage. And obviously, with a bit more cash in the bank, you can be a bit more aggressive and you can take even more uh, risks because the model is kind of semi-proven and established, and you've got kind of revenue coming in. So, you know, with these types of businesses, you can kind of predict where they're going um, and i think at this stage as i mentioned we benefited hugely from pr and one of the best appointments we ever made was our kind of um, our sort of pr manager who was just really great at getting our products and any of those you know christmas gift lists and things like that and we found quite quickly that the journalists would come to our site because we had everything in one place and actually if they were looking to um, you know, a lot of them would also go to the Design Museum gift store or the V&A gift store or the Royal Academy of Arts, and we had everything in one place, and we were really good at getting them the images, all because th- we were just sort of set up for that sort of thing, uh, and obviously they wanted to support what we were doing. But that's only, again, going to get you so far. You know, if you're looking about serious e-commerce, it's about how much do you have to spend on digital advertising in order to acquire a customer. So you need a real kind of specialist skill uh, around that. Um, And I guess the the main thing I learned at that stage is hire as many people as you can that are kind of smarter than you and don't have any ego about that because those are the people that are going to grow your business. Um, uh, And at that stage, we built yet another site. Um, I've not given you the full story there, but I think we're on about site five by this point. So (laughs) you really do go through a lot of sites. Um, Again, ideally, you wouldn't go through that many, but, you know, you learn as you go along. And me and Simon, neither of us were technology or e-commerce specialists, so everything was kind of learned as, as we went along. Um, and at this stage, I guess you've got, a, a, you know, in, in, in your ideal world, you've got basically um, a series of further big rounds that just help you keep growing the business. So in tech speak, they call that Series A round, Series B round, Series C, etc., until you get to ludicrous amounts of money um, where they're just investing more and more in your success. But we didn't do that. So we had a decision because about two years ago, Um, we had an offer for the business, um, and this is where dilution really comes in. So, as I mentioned, we'd taken on various different rounds. So I think about by this point, there would have been about 20 or so individuals and corporate entities that were invested in Culture Label. Some of them were real kind of legacy investors, you know, right from the start, um, who had very little contact with the business at this point certainly weren't particularly useful to growing the business, so they were kind of dormant investors. Um, So we had an offer on the table from um, uh, an international image library called um, Bridgman. Um, they're a bit like a kind of Getty. They have one of the world's sort of biggest art libraries. They were looking for a uh, consumer brand because a lot of what they do is, you know, kind of business-to-business stuff. Um, so, in effect, that kind of offer went to the shareholders, and it was decided across a group of us. And by this point, me and Simon would have been, you know, relatively kind of small shareholders because we'd be diluted, um, you know, through the process. Um, and as a group decided that we were, we were going to take the offer, and, and, and we exited. Um, So I guess the the final thing for us is, I guess, thinking around what are the reasons why you might do that or why you might not do that, you know, if you happen to find yourself in that position. Um, And for us, there were probably a few different reasons. One is it goes to a vote. So it actually just comes down to what percentage of people vote for something, and you'll have a threshold, you know, where you do and where you don't take a decision. Um, By this point, actually, the competitive landscape had really, really changed. So... Selling art online wasn't a kind of novel idea which may or may not work. There were some massive competitors in the space. Um, There were some businesses in the U.S., businesses like, um, uh, you know, companies like Artsy. They were getting tens of millions of dollars in investment before they'd even launched their site with, you know, founders of Google on the board. So in that sort of Silicon Valley mentality of basically, if you're going to do this, you're never going to do it on, you know, half a million dollars or even one and a half million dollars. You know, you're in it to sort of take over the world. And obviously, that Silicon Valley mentality is kind of how they build businesses. So, they put a lot of money and a lot of backing behind those businesses. So, we were always going to need um, a bigger partner or investor um, to compete with those types of beasts. But actually, when we did have some of those conversations, those companies existed now. So, they would look at the competitive landscape and say, well, it doesn't matter whether you're first mover – you know, do I have the funds to compete in rounds with companies like Artsy? Um, so, and, and they're heavyweight backers. So as I mentioned in that light, the shareholders felt it was a good offer and probably was. this was you know, where, where the business was heading. It would keep growing organically, but it wasn't necessarily um, gonna compete with those sort of global giants. Um, and at the same time also we had sort of Remix, which had been a kind of bit of a fringe project sort of on the side and it was growing to the point where also it was diverting resources within the team. And I think for, for me and Simon, we felt well, the shareholders are also, at that point, sort of, you know, five, six years in. Um, there was probably a recognition that our skills had got it up to that point, and this was probably the time to kind of move on. And I think we were happy enough to do that, and we felt, you know, it was an offer that financially benefited us as well. So we sort of took that that decision. So I guess with hindsight, having been through that journey, um, and, these, and these these takeaways, as I mentioned, they're not exhaustive. They're just some of the thoughts that that came out of our particular journey. I think, um, and some of it's come out in your, your questions. Um, I, I would certainly have got more technology expertise in earlier, and ideally within the founding team. And the reason for that is, you know, some of these businesses, like Artsy, came to the table with you know ex-Googlers or people from Facebook or from Apple. And they're going to Silicon Valley investors, and they're looking not just at the idea, because Culture Label was a really, really good idea, but they're looking at how likely is that founding team going to deliver that idea to its full potential. So having coding expertise or digital marketing expertise with some kind of major sort of technology companies uh, within your CV is obviously going to be pretty helpful. So... Um, and I think that's a key thing for founders some founders are brilliant as solo founders or they, they, they do it as a couple of them but also I think for us in this particular case because me and Simon had a certain set of skills but they weren't e-commerce skills um, we learned a hell of a lot on our way I think probably in hindsight we would have structured the team slightly differently at the start um, and obviously there would have been equity implications for that but I, th- I think in, you know knowing where we got to that would have been probably a good decision um, And I think for that reason, obviously, you've got to be very, very careful with your opening share structure because once you've set it, it's incredibly hard to reset it. Um, and we had various people involved in our business within the kind of the founding team when actually when it came down to it weren't really ever going to work on this you know twenty four seven like me and simon and and we were lucky we were able to come to kind of agreements with people so that you know it was reflected in in the share structure but people can actually at that point can be really sort of tough and just go well you've made your decision on the share structure i'm just gonna sit in the background and, you know, friends of mine have heard real horror stories where they've actually had to sink their company in order to kind of restart it because they've had sort of, you know, found in people who said, look, this is my dream. I'm going to be working on this all the time. And in reality, the business starts. And that's not what they plan to do for whatever reason, good or bad, that might be. So I think getting founding in teams right is really, really critical. Um, in our particular circumstance, um, I probably would have taken the Silicon Valley route, and I would have raised it. I think it was a really quite original idea at the time that we did it. So I think with the right founding team, and again, it's easy to say in hindsight, I think we needed to raise a lot more money, because ultimately we got outspent um, towards the end of our journey. Um, and it was interesting talking to a VC about this you know, after the event, and they were saying... Actually, what a lot of these companies do, and it's got to be credible, is obviously you change the value. So it's not a million pounds. It's 10 million pound value on the company. And these valuations are very, very arbitrary because a lot of these businesses that raised 10, 20 million like Artsy just made up a value because, of course, it's, you know, of course, we're going to get to a million customers because we've got this amazing team and this amazing idea. So it's got to be credible, but I would say... In our particular environment where it's about competing kind of online in a very competitive e-commerce space, you'd have need a lot more money to do that. Um, I think probably we should have quit our day jobs earlier and sort of fully committed to it. Um, and I think also because we were really fortunate to get as much media attention and coverage as we did... Everybody knocked on our door through that first year. So it was very, very easy to get distracted with projects that seemed like they were central to the business, but actually in hindsight weren't particularly, and there were probably other things that we should have done. Um, But I think um, that's where the 10,000 sort of contact thing can go badly wrong, especially where you're getting traction and you're getting attention. Um, And I think probably in hindsight, seeing where the kind of online art market has gone right – Having a fully curatorial-led model, which was always the thing that people you know, said they loved about Culture Label, probably wasn't the right model for scale. Um, and actually, obviously, with the growth of things like artificial intelligence and the ways that you can kind of automate e-commerce now, it probably needed a kind of bit of both. But it felt like art was such a unique thing that it always needed this curatorial voice. And I think that was probably a bit more of a kind of hangover from the kind of the offline world. And we probably needed to embrace a little bit of the other side of it. So that's kind of the kind of culture label story. So hopefully there's been some kind of useful things there. But I thought I'd finish by maybe just talking about some of the other stuff that I'm seeing going on in the creative entrepreneurship space through Remix. We'd always been on the kind of the founder entrepreneur side and something like remix is quite a different thing because really you're providing a platform to those entrepreneurs so even though it is your own business and you're and you're building it in that sense it's probably a slightly different position so if I think for both me and Simon for a, a while it was weird not building a kind of technology startup because that's what we'd been doing for kind of five or six years but I guess it, we're also the, the time that we sold it, I think we were also ready to do something else but I think for both of us, it wasn't like the end of our story is, is building that type of business. We both sort of feel like we'll do something like that again. It's just when the right idea comes along. And I think what you find is once you've done it once, you know, our biggest fear now is, you know, Ever having to get a job or or something like that. It's just um, you know, and that's what we'd always done before. You know, up to up to that point, we went through a, the career path that lots of, of people go through. Um, but we really sort of caught the bug. So I think we felt, yeah, the timing was 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 right. It was a bit weird having done nothing else for kind of six years, but at the same time, I really don't miss an e-commerce Christmas. Um, that is not a lot of fun, you know. So what what you'd find is a, a lot of people go via the kind of the NDA route. Um, Uh, But we found that quite restrictive because um, it's kind of interesting in the tech world. There's obviously – there's a generosity of spirit in that um, the idea is if any sort of up-and-coming founder wants advice and maybe somebody's already a bit established for their business, you should open your door and, and say yes and give them whatever advice you can. Um, And because I guess we'd had a bit of media attention, you'd get people kind of emailing saying, "You know, can I come and have a coffee?" And the first thing they'd say is, "I'm kind of, you know, basically building the next, you know, Facebook or something, but I need you to sign this kind of NDA." And then the first thing you'd be thinking is, "Well," actually, that could be really compromising in terms of ideas that I might already have if you talk about something. And then suddenly you're getting into a kind of process with somebody, and I've lost track of the number of people that said that. I don't remember very many of them reading in the paper later that they'd become the next Facebook. So I think you can get overly concerned with that. And we took an approach which was actually let's be quite open and talk about what we're doing because that way we're giving people the full picture and either they're going to get on board or not if we're kind of secretive because we think we're protecting something actually what are you protecting because pretty much everything we did somebody could have built a carbon copy yes with a different name or something like that but there was virtually no protection so it did came down to speed and first mover advantage some of the team were with us pretty much throughout um it's funny, you know, you know, you're starting to get established when some of them got offered really awesome jobs. So, like, um, uh, our first ever employee, uh, one of them ended up becoming uh, the e-commerce manager at John Lewis. Uh, which is like a really major sort of UK retailer, so um, which is great. I mean, you can only wish people the best when they get headhunted for a kind of job like that. But we were lucky. We didn't lose very many people because it was, you know, it was a nice organization to, to work for in terms of what we did. And pretty much everybody that joined us was, was very passionate about the, the mission. There were very few people that were coming in with you know pure sort of technology skills or something like that and again in hindsight that's maybe one of the things that we brought in more and more specialist um, expertise as we went along but in the early days the kind of people that wanted to join Culture Label just really believed in our kind of world view um, so they were, they were joining again I think for a passion for the brand or for arts and culture as much as anything else you know. I saw this kind of headline in the the Atlantic recently which I think is for, for me, what well, I found pretty kind of interesting, you know, it's deliberately, you know, sort of controversial and confrontational, um, but it talks about, obviously, the move away from a, a, an artist and, you know, the artist and the, the starving artist and the garret type model into the birth of the, the kind of creative entrepreneur, and it's definitely one of those kind of discuss, you know, um, but I think it's kind of interesting as a device to think about how other people are scaling ideas very quickly within that sort of creative space. Uh, And apologies if you know about some of these examples, but if you don't, I think certainly the next one gives you an idea of just how quickly things can become very big. So uh, Fabian, who's the founder of Secret Cinema, he had an idea which is, and he's a bit of a sort of... um, I'd like to think it was almost like a kind of Willy Wonka-type character. And, and as a, a child, you know, he sort of dreamed about, well, you know, I watch these movies, but, you know, why can't I be on the set and kind of in the, in the movie? So he looked at kind of the, the notion of how we see film and thought, well, why don't you build the world of the film? Um, and then insert the audience into that world. Um, and around this time, London was, was sort of full of people that were trying kind of immersive theater, and, and, and I guess doing it around film was a new thing. And I remember seven or eight years ago going to one of these early productions, which is nothing like the scale of Star Wars, what he did a couple of years ago, for Blade Runner and thinking he's really onto something here because he kind of built the world of Blade Runner, and there's actors kind of running around, and there was food, and there was kind of retail in this giant warehouse um, down near Canary Wharf, so you go there for about seven or eight hours and you're immersed in you know, very much um, the whole sort of plot of that movie. And then at some point, you'll sort of see the movie within the world that they've created. And to give you an idea of the scale that that's got to, so this is um, Star Wars, which they did as a direct partnership with Disney. Um, they basically built 18 acres of sets. So it was absolutely epic. Um, you know, it was covered around the world um, over a hundred thousand people went to see it uh, in its hundred-day run, so it was basically eleven weeks. They put the Empire Strikes Back uh, back into the UK box office top ten, so they are basically, you know, that um, successful that they're hitting sort of top ten of a box office. Um, they're charging about £78 per ticket, and they've got a, obviously a big spend on top of that in terms of food and drink. So they don't disclose their exact box office figures, but if you just take the ticket price alone, um, obviously preface the fact that something like that is incredibly expensive to pull off, um, but you know, the box office alone was about £7.8 million. Um, and uh, another example would be their production of Secret Cinema, uh, sorry, of um, Back to the Future, where they took over um, London's Olympic Park uh, and literally built the world of Hill Valley. So um, they even built a housing estate where Marty and Biff lived. You know, um, So it was, again, on a huge, huge scale. And it became a real cultural phenomenon because there's lots of other kind of independent cinema and arts experiences that take place across the site. And by the end of it, you have bands like Pulp Reforming to perform on stage to the crowd and things. So, um, And again, this is something that was very, very small and very underground and was a kind of Shoreditch hipster set not that long ago. And they're now looking to kind of scale it around the world. And there are, again, similar organizations that are doing their equivalent of secret cinema, including in, in Australia. Um, and again, again, they're very, very smart about the way they go about their marketing. So, for Back to the Future, um, across kind of London, various things you know popped up, like a uh, you know a record store from the era, a kind of diner. Um, again, in, p- in places like kind of East London, that was all about sort of building an audience and an anticipation, but also provided revenue streams because these were quite like fun places to go and buy your records or go and sit and have a burger. Um, and again, they hit eighty-five thousand people for, for Back to the Future. Um, On a much smaller scale, but no less interesting, I think, this is uh, Lisa on the right-hand side. So Lisa is based out of our co-working space in in Shoreditch in East London. Um, She had a really kind of interesting idea in that she was an editor of an archaeology magazine in the UK, which shall remain nameless. And I guess she's one of these people who was slightly frustrated with her own profession, so she felt that archaeology used a lot of technologies within the dig process itself but wasn't really taking advantage of digital technologies to connect to new audiences. And she felt it was maybe a little bit of a kind of closed shop as well in terms of, of attracting new types of people into archaeology. Um, so she came up with this concept of dirty weekends, uh, but not the kind of weekend that you're thinking about, it involves actual dirt in an archaeological sense. Um, and her idea was to create a kind of Kickstarter for archaeology. And she effectively kind of packaged these dirty weekends to, again, to appeal to that sort of urban audience almost as kind of adventure holidays. So you could go to various exotic digs around the world with your friends and participate in in archaeology. And before she knew it, she'd raised several hundred thousand pounds um, uh, towards digs, at a time when a lot of public funding has been cut, um, obviously from areas such as archaeology, um, and was really sort of proving that there was a kind of scalable model. Um, and then about a year ago, she again found one of these venture philanthropists, so somebody who was passionate about what she did and, and about Lisa's view of the world, but also believed that she had a sustainable business model um, and got a seven-figure sum of investment to grow that business, because she'd spent you know, two or three years really perfecting and proving that there was there was a kind of business model sitting behind it. Um, another example, completely different again. So, uh, Moji's is a, a startup created by again everyone's a sort of Leonardo da Vinci type character at the moment. So the founder of Moji's is a classically trained musician as well as a technologist and. Uh, his big idea was to literally get people to play the world Um, and what I mean by that is he developed this kind of app and this device here which you can basically attach to anything, in this case a table, it can be a chair and it turns them into a kind of musical instrument. And he used Kickstarter as a way of kind of funding the idea, hoping other people would agree with him that this was a pretty cool thing. And he had a pretty amazing video where he's playing various different objects within a street, um, sort of demonstrating it. And it's a really cool thing. I remember sort of using it, thinking um, as somebody who's not a classically trained musician, it's actually relatively easy to get quite nice sound and effect from it. We had him on stage at Remix where he did a much better version of what I did and kind of wowed the crowd. But his Kickstarter campaign was huge successful, raised several hundred thousand dollars, but he used that to demonstrate demand to get a much bigger investment. sum so on the back of the fact that he could prove there was an audience for what he was doing. Um, so I guess to kind of finish, if there's some example of kind of creative entrepreneurs doing interesting things. And, and I think it's great to be saying this within AcmeX. I think what we're finding now is there's new types of infrastructure Um, sort of rising up, which is supporting creative entrepreneurs within their their various different missions. Um, And I think, and I would say this with my Remix hat on, it's coming out of a sort of post-Silicon Valley thinking. And so often, sort of cities have been obsessed with, well, we need to build a technology or innovation district. And what that tends to involve is we'll get a Google and a Microsoft and a few tech startups, and then we've got our innovation district. But actually, if you look at, and I meant the reason I mentioned things like London and New York, or Berlin's a great example as well, and the size of startup community that they've got to it's because they're patiently not Silicon Valley. They're much more interesting places to live. If you've ever been to Silicon Valley, it's not the most exciting place. It's no wonder are all sort of spreading up to San Francisco. And I think the sort of creative cities of the future are going to have a much more sophisticated creative ecology. And actually, arts and culture and the creative industry sit absolutely at the heart of that. So not only are they drivers of scalable creative enterprises in their own right, along the lines of what we've been talking about, along the lines of the people that are within um, Acme X, or you'll get different types of creatives coming together, also, they obviously add to the kind of livability or the creative placemaking of a city in terms of why the technology startups would want to be there. And it's no surprise if you look at something like Shoreditch in East London, before you had the startups, it was a very organic grassroots creative capital within the city. And the great thing is it's not just me saying this. You've got people like Google's you know, sort of Australian MD saying, you know, Google innovation is going to come from a few different places it's not just about this you know pure focus on technology and he uses you know the x-factor as an example and steam and he talks about the x-factor could be finance science or the arts so I think this is really really kind of important I've always had a strong belief in the kind of the arts culture creative industries bit being a really core component both of what I think make interesting cities from a kind of a startup economy point of view, but also in terms of where you would like to live. I've always thought if you can find ways of bringing people together that aren't going to necessarily meet each other in their day jobs... Um, And I think, like coming, we always have the kind of the arts and culture bit at the heart of it. We found that's really quite a powerful draw to, you know, Googlers or people working in the startup community, um, because actually there are some genuine things that they can kind of offer one another. Um, And it means it's not just the kind of standard technology conference. Um, You're hearing about some of the similar themes, but they're dealt with from a really kind of cross-disciplinary perspective. Um, So yeah and it's been really nice in the perspective of when again when you do these things you don't necessarily know they're going to work when we did the first one again nobody may have turned up and we were really helped by the fact that Google and Bloomberg and the Guardian got behind that kind of concept as core founders and so we're able to provide some sort of resource to support the first one but it sold out and it just seemed that actually some of the you know really senior people in the tech world loved meeting people from within the arts and culture world and obviously you're seeing that on a kind of day-to-day basis and somewhere like Acme X and it's, you know, it's very similar remixes an event version of hopefully what you know is being achieved every day at somewhere like acme x um so it's yeah i think the unique selling proposition is is taking creatives in lots of different worlds and kind of bringing them together you have been listening to an acme podcast for more recordings go to soundcloud.com slash acme online or the acme website